Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. Can you believe we've already gotten through a month of 2023, but there's a lot to go, and we want to make sure that we are right for the rest of it. It is, by the way, African American History Month, Black History Month, and it is Heart Month. And because it's Wednesday, you know I like to do a little Wellness Wednesday. And we are here with cardiologist Dr. Taiwan Tillman to start us off today. Good morning. How are you doing? Oh, dear. Oh, no. Is he not with us? Oh, my gosh. So, all right. Well, we we will get to kind of see where he is and um, – we will talk about cardiology and heart month. Um, it's a heart month is kind of a topic near and dear to my my own heart. Um, I did go last year, late last year. I think I mentioned it to you all and get my heart checked uh, because when I turned 61, I started thinking about my mom who had her first heart attack um, at age 61, and I wanted to make sure that things were uh, ticking properly and everything in place. Um, so, you know, I had multiple tests, and they came out okay. Uh, just a little, I think, uh, that thickness in one of the walls with nothing to be concerned about. I am scheduled to go back and get checked. but um, And I try to do what I can to keep it going well. I do try to exercise. I've been a little lax lately, a little lazy, um, especially when it was cold earlier this month. I didn't want to kind of get out and go to the gym, but I do a little Zumba at home sometimes. But I do enjoy the pool at the gym, so that's my motivation for going back. Um, the other thing that I have a concern with is because I have Graves' disease and hyperthyroidism with Graves' disease. And what it causes sometimes, if I'm not taking care of my thyroid and keeping my levels in check, I get palpitations. You know, the heart starts to race a little bit. So I don't want to tax my heart too much, so I try to keep the thyroid in check that requires for me medication. Um, there has been some talk of a little surgery, but um, I'm surgery averse. Uh, I don't like to be cut into unless I have to be. And so um, just kind of managing it with medication, right, as of now, one of my thyroid levels has increased. Um, my doctor and I, I just met with her last week. We um, or was it a week before last? But anyway, week like last week, and we uh, talked about that we increased my dosage a little bit, uh, just a little. Uh, we monitor that because we also monitor things like kidney and liver and make sure that uh, I'm not taxing the organs too much. Um, that's one of those things that uh, where water comes into play because you have to keep your system flushed in order to make sure that. Uh, you are not um, keeping too much of the residual effects of your medications in your system. So, you know, constantly drinking water and, and you know, monitoring other things uh, is important to keep, you know, everything in check. It's always something, isn't it? Anyway, like I said, uh, we are expecting Dr. Uh, Taiwan Tillman shortly. And if you have questions or you want to talk about your heart, you want to talk about Black History Month, um, the call-in number is 516-387-1944. That's 516-387-1944. We're going to take a break. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. 
Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Welcome back to G's Power Hour. I've never had it so good entertainment. I am your host, G, and good morning, Dr. Tillman. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Uh-oh. Hello? I thought he was on. I thought I got a message that Dr. Tillman was on. So, um, anyway, I, or I'm either that or I'm not being heard. I'm not sure which one. Uh Princess, do you know what's going Well, no, Princess is busy. Uh, let's see here. Let me check in with Dr. Tillman and find out what's going on. So uh, if you all would be patient with us, we're going to try to uh, get Dr. Tillman on. Uh, the number, by the way, is 516-387-1944. Gretchen? Uh, uh-oh. He says he is on. He Gretchen. says he's on hold. Okay, and I'm not certain what's you know what's going on. We are working with some technical issues, so I'm sorry Gretchen. about that. But we'll try to bring Dr. Tillman on as soon as possible. Uh, Princess, do you know? I hate to bother you, but do you know if Dr. Tillman is is holding? Gretchen, you're the only one that can't hear him. Hello. 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 All right, we're going to take another quick break. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. This is Douglas Dobbs of Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community for 29 years with quality funeral and cremation services. Honoring all religions and faiths, we have been here for many grieving families. Whether it's a complete funeral service with a burial or a simple dignified cremation, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here for you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs dedicated to serving our families. All right. So this is what happens when you are technologically challenged and um, technology takes over and has a mind of its own. (laughs) Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thank you so much for being with us. And I apologize because uh, there were some things that were on that weren't supposed to be on. There were some things that we're off that we're supposed to be on and all that kind of stuff. Dr. Tillman, are you there? Hello. He's on. He Hello. is good. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. How are you today? Uh, well, I'm fine until just a few minutes ago, and I get, that's enough to make my heart make uh, get to pumping. So but we thank well, you that, for taking the time. Well, that's technology for you. Oh, goodness gracious. I, you know, I have this love-hate relationship with it, and, you know, I just <laughs> you know, just try to keep up. But thank of you course. for taking the time. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and thanks for having me. Glad to be with you today. Glad to have you. So please give me some insight about you. Give our our listeners some insight about you and what made it motivated you to get into uh, cardiology. Okay. Well, I am what's called an interventional cardiologist, which means I'm a cardiologist that does lots of procedures, stents and pacemakers and so forth. I am currently located in Victoria, Texas, which is a town of about a couple of hours south of Houston. 
I've been here for 15 years. Um, I'm originally from South Carolina, and um, I did parts of my training in Georgia and Minnesota and in Florida. And I think we have something in common. Uh, I listened to one of your shows, and did you go to USF? Go Bulls, of course. Go Bulls, yeah. I did part <laughs> of my cardiology training at the University of South Florida. So I was in Tampa for a while, wow. actually. Before I moved to Texas, I was in Tampa at USF. Mm-hmm. And so so I've been here for about 15 years. And um, I think as far as how I got into cardiology, um, I started when I was in high school. I was interested. I was interested in sciences and biology, and wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I always liked science. And um, as I got on into high school and you know getting close to graduation and figuring out where I wanted to go to college, you know when I started looking for colleges, it was more about football than it was about schools. And uh, I had decided that I was probably going to go to Florida State, but before the season even started my senior year, I had a really bad injury. I broke my right leg in several places, so I missed my entire senior season, and a lot of the scholarship opportunities that I had sort of disappeared overnight. And so then I had to make some different decisions, and some of those decisions were sort of, should I go to school looking more for football, or should I go looking more for academics? And I sort of chose academics. So I ended up um, going to uh, Furman University in South Carolina, where I played football, and majored in biology pre-med. And it just so happens, I my first year after coming, I went played my first year in college, came home that summer, and I was visiting my uh, high school football coach, and his wife walks in, and she says, what are you majoring in? And I said, I think biology or pre-med. And she says, well, guess what? I work for a cardiologist. You should come in. He likes to have students visit. And so she introduced me to him. Turns out we had a lot in common. He played college football. He was from the same area. And uh, he was an African-American. And uh, he sort of took me under his wing. And so I was 17 at the time. And so from the age of 17 through all the way through medical school, I spent summers with him. I spent weekends with him sometimes doing rounds and seeing patients. And it really gave me a kickstart. Oh, first of all, it gave me a window into what medicine was like. It introduced me to cardiology. It introduced me to, you know, a mentor that otherwise, you know, I would not have had. And I probably, I don't know where I would have gone without that, but I know that that was extremely important in my career and also the way I developed as a physician. And so I think um, mentors is, is having mentors is something that I think is extremely important, and it's something I think we lack in our community for um, developing physicians in our community. But it's it's and but that was my introduction to cardiology. So from then on, I kind of went into medical school knowing exactly what I wanted to do. Most people, and I looked at my colleagues in medical school. They had no idea what they wanted to do, and you're sort of choosing last minute because you really only have a year and a half of exposure to decide, you know, which field you want to choose. And if you don't have that additional exposure, you're sort of just choosing blind and hoping that you get it right. But I think for me, it was I had exposure. Turns out that it's been great. It's been exactly what I wanted to do. I've been happy with my career, and it's just been it's been great for me. Well, that's a blessing, truly. And and you're right, mentoring, I, I don't think people realize how important that is to to reach back and mentor someone um, or to, you know, because I think the young person doesn't necessarily realize they need a mentor, you know, right. sometimes. Um, so it's important that, you know, you as the person, the seasoned person, kind of go back and take a look around and say, you know, Hey, what are you doing? Uh, what are you thinking about doing? Uh, what are your questions? You know, who could I put you in contact with? Um, do you want to, you know, spend some time looking into this particular field? And I, that I'm glad you had um, that benefited you, and you were able to to, deter, to you know to discern that you know you already had what you wanted to do in mind, and and didn't have to make a rush or snap decision about that. To you and and to those who mentored you, definitely. So let's talk about let's let's talk about the history of car, of heart disease with African Americans. We're going to talk we're going to talk African American history in that way. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about 
why it seems to be so prevalent with us. There's there's several reasons for that. Um, And just let me elaborate. Um, Broadly, there's genetics and um, there's also culture. Um, There's also the socioeconomic side. And then there's also the side that has to do with racism and disparities in healthcare delivery that we get from our physicians and from, you know, our communities and insurance companies and so forth. So um, let's simply, probably the easiest way to start is to start with, um, I would say the genetic. And so, you know, when it comes to heart disease, there's risk factors. Well, let's just not say heart disease. I'm going to use the term cardiovascular disease. And cardiovascular disease is inclusive of heart disease and stroke, okay? And um, it's for years and years and years, and it hasn't changed, the biggest cause of death throughout the U.S. is, and for particularly for African Americans, is cardiovascular disease. And, you know, people always think they're afraid of cancer and they're worried about cancer deaths. Well, the risk of cardiovascular disease is higher than all the top 10 cancers combined, so the likelihood, even if you've had breast cancer or you've had prostate cancer, you're more likely to die across the board from heart disease than you are from that cancer. So cardiovascular disease is the one killer in the United States, and it's probably going to be that way forever. So, and if you look at African Americans as a subset, our risk of stroke, our risk of heart attack, our risk of all the risk factors that go into that are multitudes higher than almost any other population, save some of the Native Americans and small populations of uh, Hispanics. So having said that, the um, big risk factors of heart disease, hypertension is one that's the biggest problem for African Americans, diabetes, obesity, smoking, and high cholesterol. And those are all risk factors that are modifiable. In other words, they can be treated and optimized. The one that you can't change is your genetics. And so if we talk about the genetic part, those are the things that, you know, as black people, we're just at higher risk for. And um, when you talk about, I mentioned hypertension is the one that is is the biggest problem for us. For whatever reason, um, we tend to run higher blood pressures. We tend to have more complications from blood pressure than other races. So, for example, white people with uh, average blood pressure, say high blood pressure that runs 150 over 90 versus black people that have blood pressures 150 over 90, our risk for stroke with that same blood pressure is significantly higher than other races. We don't know why. It's something genetic, but that is the case. And so it's, it's that much more important that we treat our blood pressure, our hypertension aggressively. Um, when you look at hypertension for all races, Black people tend to be more aware that they're, that they're hypertensive than other races, but we tend to treat it at a lower rate than other races. We tend to, you know, seek treatment or take the medications at a lower rate than other races, even though we're more aware that we have it. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons, you know, compliance with medications, one of the reasons. But um, the genetic part is the one part we can't change, and it's a, lot of, a lot of times it's something as physicians that we gloss over because it's not something that we can treat. But it, it's, on one hand, that's true, and it's a reason to not really focus on it. But on the other hand, the important part about the genetic part is a lot of times it subsets the population. So genetic, genetics meaning the genetics of African Americans are different from the genetics of Caucasian Americans. And the problem with that is most of the time when they do studies, for example, which medications are best for treating hypertension, which um, techniques are best for preventing stroke and so forth. You look at those studies, about 95% of those people in the studies are typically Caucasian, sometimes even 98, 99%. So the studies, the results of those studies and the treatments that are recommended for patients don't always apply to people of different genetic backgrounds. So it's sort of, and that's part of the reason why we may not respond as well to certain medications. So some of the healthcare bias issues that we talk about are disparities in healthcare aren't necessarily intentional. They're just sort of ingrained or unintentional. It's just, we call it selection bias because 
of the way the, the study population was selected, but it's not necessarily intentional. Sometimes it's just for a number of different reasons that are sort of almost unavoidable, the uh, genetic part. Now, if we talk about the cultural part, I think that's probably the most interesting part. So I've lived in different areas of the country, traveled to lots of areas in the country, and um, one of the things that you see amongst as you travel around the country is there's different diets. You know, people in California eat differently from people in Minnesota who eat differently from people in Texas who eat differently from people in New York. There are all these different regional diets. However, if you look at African Americans, it doesn't matter where you go, the diets tend to be very similar. So what we call a typical Southern diet. And I don't know why that is. I mean, partially because, you know, all of us sort of came from the same area, at least if you go back a few generations, you know, most of us came from half families that originated in the South, and it's just the diets just sort of have persisted. And it's sort of what we consider part of our culture. And that diet is part of the problem. And I'm sure, you know, everybody knows what the Southern diet is. And it's good food. And everybody loves that food, not just us. But, you know, it shouldn't be your daily diet. It should be, you know, maybe what you eat as a treat or for special occasions. But it shouldn't be what you eat on a daily basis. And uh, too many of us still eat that diet on a daily basis. So that's one of the cultural things where there's a lot of, you know, heavy, a lot of salty food, a lot of uh, things that just aren't healthy that contribute to the risk factors of heart disease that I mentioned, high blood pressure and um, weight gain and elevated blood sugar and so forth, elevated cholesterol. And those are all, you know, those are things that then feed into heart attack and stroke. And so that's a a cultural side. The other cultural um, thing is that we haven't, I heard you talking earlier, so I was listening about how you exercise routinely and do all these things to try and, you know, manage your health and stay healthy. Well, as, you know, overall, we aren't all that health conscious as black people. We don't exercise at the same rates as um, white people and some other some other um, segments of the population. And so overall, we tend to be a little less healthy for that reason. Um, and, that, you know, once again, you know, that's a cultural thing. And, it, and cultural, I mentioned socioeconomic, some of that comes into play as well um, when it comes to you know, being able to stay healthy, what your diet may be. Sometimes, you know, you eat what you can afford. And, you know, if you have to work two jobs, then you don't have time to work out. And if you're worried about, you know, a roof over your head and you're worried about food and you're worried about just keeping your car running so you can get to work, you know, the last thing in your mind is when I get home from work, you know, I need to go exercise, I need to go work out. And so there's, you know, the socioeconomic differences come into play as well. And so there are a lot of things, a lot of, different individual aspects that impact the uh, cardiovascular health of African-Americans. And, you know, on one hand, it makes it difficult to sort of get your arms around the entire problem and to try and make a difference. But it also allows a lot of different areas to try and make differences and to try and make some, some inroads and make some gains. So now, thanks for breaking that down, first of all. So now we talked about, you know, cultural stuff. There are some things we can modify that we know of. We know, for example, that the a lot of the diets, our, our, our diets um, are, are comfort food because, you know, they've been in our family. Our moms and our aunts and cousins fed them to us, and we use them as part of celebrations, you know, when we get together and stuff like that. But we know that we have to do some modification with that. But I want to get back to the genetic aspect because I want to find out, number one, is and I know there's not a lot of funding for it probably and there's not a lot of attention paid to it probably because it's just us, it's just the African-Americans. Right. But is there any study uh, or any research being done on on the genetic side of cardiovascular disease with African-Americans. And the reason I ask that, because one of the things you mentioned was medications. And I know, for example, um, my husband was seeing a doctor that was giving him a medication that, and he was having a reaction 
um, and we had to take him to the emergency room. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it turned out that it was a, a medication, a blood pressure medication, that was not suitable for African Americans. And mm-hmm. it seems that his primary doctor did not, I don't know if he didn't know it or didn't pay attention or what the case was, but someone else in his practice uh, was aware of it and, and, and you know, you know, called attention to it. We had no idea. Of course, we're not trained. Um, so it's unfortunate that the people that are trained, the people that you rely upon to make the right decisions, uh, some people make mistakes, but some people are kind of careless or don't pay attention. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm taking the long way around, but what I want to know, is there any research that talks about the genetic differences and what African-Americans should do versus everybody else? Um, yes, in, 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 some, in some ways, yes. Um, so, for example, um, we have we, – we'll start with your example of hypertension from your husband. So we have uh, – basically, when you're treating hypertension, there's a tier for separate drugs that you may use. So there's the first tier of medications, which is one class of medications. Second tier is another class. Third tier is another class. Fourth tier is another class, and there's others. Um, first tier and second tier can be reversed for whites versus African Americans. Um, so what we typically, so what you know is typically taught as the second tier drug, may for African Americans probably is better as a first tier drug. And also African Americans tend to do very well if you add a diuretic to their medications. And so my guess is that's probably what went on with your husband. They probably used a typical first tier and then they, his the colleague probably said the second tier would probably be better for him. But I mean if you take into account um that most physicians, you know, they trained in medical schools where ninety five percent of their patients were white, ninety five percent of their professors were white. And so when you see tier one, two, three, four blood pressure medications, you apply tier one, two, three, four to every single patient you see, and you don't really they don't really think otherwise. I mean, they're unintentional blind spots, but they're blind spots nonetheless. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, well, I'll give you a couple examples. So I did my I went to medical school at the Medical College of Georgia, which is in Augusta. And um we had an entire sickle cell clinic. We saw sickle cell all the time. We um, so it was something that was just routine that you you know was always at the forefront of your mind. Now I left there and I went to the Mayo Clinic, and I did uh, residency training at the Mayo Clinic. I was there for five years, residency and on staff. Never saw a single case of sickle cell because it's just something you don't see. And uh, and then a couple of years ago at my current job, there was a patient in the emergency room came in with severe chest pain. And he had sickle cell disease. And if you ask him three questions, you know, what's your medical history? I have sickle cell disease. What does this feel like? It feels like a sickle cell crisis. You know, he would tell you that. But the doctor in the emergency room had never seen sickle cell disease before. He thinks the patient's having a heart attack. So he ends up having me come see the guy because he thinks it's a heart attack. I walk and I see him and I ask him, you have sickle cell disease? He says, yes. He says, does this feel like your typical sickle cell crisis? He says, yes. And I said, do you tell the doctor that? He said he wouldn't listen to me. And so, you know, it's it's that type of thing where, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of not being exposed to people and not being exposed to other races in your training or in your daily life where, you know, you just you just end up with these blind spots. And um, and that that's just an anecdotal case. And I've seen other cases, you know, very similar. But I, I one thing, though, that makes it difficult for us as far as um, African-Americans, when we talk about the genetic side. Now, one thing that we know historically is that, is that the human race originated in Africa. So Africa is the cradle of human civilization. And over hundreds and thousands of years, the rest of the world got populated by basically people walking from Africa to other parts of the world back when the continents were closer together and connected and you could walk everywhere. And then slowly over time, in different parts of the world, people sort of evolved to be, you know, different races and different genetics. The reason I mention that is because, because of that reason, 
Africa and African-Americans, as a result of being originally from Africa, have huge, unimaginable genetic variability. And so what that means is if you look at Africans on the continent of Africa that live in countries that are even neighboring each other, they, they have genetics that are less close related than Asians and white Europeans. I mean, Asians and white Europeans have more ancestry in common than darks and Africans living right next to each other because there's so much genetic variability. And for that reason, it's, you know, difficult to sort of pinpoint individual treatments for us as African Americans. And, um, but having said that, there are things that we know that we, that we do know as far as treating hypertension, treating diabetes, treating stroke that are towards African-Americans. And like I said, when you start, when you look at heart disease and you look at stroke and you look at peripheral arterial disease, which, which is blockages in the legs, sometimes that across the board, the most difficult thing to treat and the biggest risk factor contributing to those things for African-Americans is hypertension. And so that, that's something that at least right now, most of the research is being targeted on on hypertension. And there's not a lot that we can do right now as far as, you know, if we find something genetically wrong or genetically modifiable, there, there is no options to do anything at this time. But hopefully at some point in the future, you will, we will be able to look at someone's genetics and then determine based on their genetics which medication therapy would be best for them. We're not there yet, but there's early research, you know, that's looking at those types of things. So I want to talk now, I guess, a little bit more in general about um, treating cardiovascular disease in terms of, uh, you know, in general, what are the signs that you might have? Let's, let's start with prevention. Let's start with um, being more aware of our, our bodies. What should we be honing in on? Very important. And it it's nice that you catch me. Today is February 1st, and it's the first day of, of National Heart Month. And so mm-hmm. Heart Month was started by the American Heart Association and I think President Johnson maybe back in the 60s. But the idea or the purpose of Heart Month, at least as it is today, is to educate the public about what the symptoms of heart disease are and also to educate the public about things that they can do to live a healthier lifestyle. And so I, I give... I was telling you before that during Heart Month, I give lots of lectures, sometimes, you know, groups of hundreds of people. And I don't think there's ever been a time when I've given a lecture where someone has come up to me after and they said, you know, I feel that. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's been a couple of patients that have gone from at least two times that have gone from the lecture to their doctor, gotten a stress test, and ended up with stents. At least three mm. times that's happened, actually three times, because they didn't they, they didn't recognize the symptoms, and so um, just we'll, really briefly to go over what the symptoms are, we'll start with heart disease, and everybody thinks you know everybody thinks a heart attack is a, a huge dramatic event where you have severe pain and you feel like you're going to die, and you know it's it's something that's you know really scary. Sometimes heart attacks are, but sometimes heart attack symptoms are very subtle. It may feel like just ongoing heartburn or reflux, maybe mild, but it's just persistent and it's not something that you would usually feel. Um, the other thing is, is uh, we should mention that it can be very, very different for women, black women as well. And so, but typically what you should look for is some type of discomfort anywhere from the jaw to the lower chest. That discomfort may be a burning sensation, it may be a pressure sensation, it may be a squeezing sensation, but any type of symptom like that that is persistent, that doesn't go away quickly, should raise concern about possible heart attack. And if you feel that, what you should do is you should call 911 because you, you shouldn't try and drive because if you try and drive and you deteriorate, then you know you may die on the side of the road as opposed to if something happens and you're in an ambulance, they can actually start treating you as soon as they get to you. 
And the other symptoms, so that's the presentation of a heart attack itself. The other thing that people will present with, and, and let me say this, patients have heart attacks, but it's very rare patients have a heart attack. I always will ask them if that day was the first day that they experienced chest pain or whatever their presenting symptom was, and it almost never is. They will say, you know, I noticed that for the past few weeks, every time I would exert myself, I would feel a little bit of tightness or Every time I would exert myself, I would feel a little bit of shortness of breath. Or, you know, typically, you know, when I go to work, I walk up two flights of stairs, no problem. For the past week, I have to stop halfway just because I get out of breath or because I get tightness in my chest. And so there's almost always warning signs that people ignored because they didn't know that it was, you know, that they were symptoms suggesting that they had blockages or underlying heart disease that they weren't aware of. And so it's important to be able to recognize, recognize those signs. But I would say most importantly, the early signs, the key is if you get symptoms that are associated with exertion that, resolved, that resolve when you stop doing whatever you're doing. So say, for example, you walk up two flights of stairs and you get pain in your jaw. When you stop and rest, the pain goes away. You walk up, you know, you walk half a mile and you get pain between your shoulder blades and your back and then you stop walking, and it goes away. Um, pain with exertion going down your left arm, right arm, right chest, left chest, it doesn't matter where the symptom is, but if it's brought on by exertion and relieved by rest, there's a good chance that that may be associated with a blockage in your heart. It's extremely important not to ignore because a lot of times that is your warning that you're going to get before you actually have a full-blown heart attack. And, uh, and the symptoms typically... Um, for men, it may be just chest pain, chest in, in the middle, right, left side of the chest, rating down the right or left arm. For women, I've seen everything from typical chest pain like that to hiccups and burping, um, headaches, just all kinds of symptoms because women just, whatever, for whatever reason, don't tend to present as typically as men do. And that's, a, you know, it's a, a, gen, mm-hmm. a genetic thing. So, and that's something else to be on the lookout for. But, but um, and, and certainly if you have risk factors for heart disease, um, if you're a smoker, if you're a diabetic, if you have family history of heart disease, those are all things that should make you that much more keen to be looking for any of those symptoms. But, but even beyond that, if you have significant risk factors, there are also tests that can detect early heart disease before you even have any symptoms. And sometimes there are things that you can do to, pro- to uh, reduce progression of disease and avoid disease altogether. And I think the test that I use most often for that is called the coronary calcium score. And it's basically a CT scan of your heart. It looks for any evidence of early plaquing. And so just an example of a case where I would use something like that is, say I see someone that has a a father that had a heart attack when he was four years old. He had a brother that had a heart attack, or this patient had an uncle that also had a heart attack when he was in his 40s. And then his grandfather mm-hmm. had a heart attack in his 40s, and this patient is, is 30 years old. What I'm going to do for him is order a calcium score to see if he has any evidence of early heart disease. And if he does, we're going to try and put him on medications that will prevent him from the fate of having a heart attack in his 40s, just like multiple other male family members of his had in the past. But it's, it's important to catch those people early. And by the same token, if I see the dad, if I see someone that has a heart attack when they're 45, I'll ask him, you have kids, and if they do, I'll tell them, you're, you know, your kids need to be screened for heart disease early on so that, you know, we can maybe prevent them from having a heart attack in their 40s. Okay, so like you said, you were listening, and, and I mentioned about um, I, I actually asked to have my heart checked. And mm-hmm. I, because, and, and so should I have asked um, or General practitioners, for example, trained to say, okay, you know, is, is there like a timeline that says, okay, maybe you should, you know, you're this age, you're doing this or you're not doing this, maybe you should uh, have your heart checked. Do I rely on my general practitioner to dictate the timeline to get things checked or do I go ahead and ask? And and I always say if your doc, if you ask and your doctor doesn't, uh, want to comply that you should probably find another doctor or maybe <laughs> go and, and search yourself. I don't know. So I'm asking <laughs> you, how, how should this be handled? That is an excellent question. Um, so 
So unfortunately, our healthcare system, our mode of thinking isn't designed as much for prevention as it should be. And um, especially when it comes to, to heart disease, most people aren't going to, their doctors aren't going to do anything or think about anything until they present with symptoms. Now, if you're 30 years old and you're healthy, you don't have any risk factors for heart disease, you don't have any family history of heart disease, it's probably a waste of time to go checking for things. However, you know, if you're a little older or you have any risk factors, family history, or any of the other risk factors I mentioned earlier, then, you know, there, there are some things that you can do. Insurance companies don't tend to support it. Primary mm-hmm. care doctors don't tend to um, push for it. But um, unfortunately, that most of the time when it comes to cardiovascular disease, those are things you have to sort of seek out on your own. And so how do you do that? And some, some hospitals will have programs where um, they offer screening for these things. And, um, you know, and those are the types of things like during heart fairs, during heart month, most hospitals, you walk in the front door or you look at their calendar for the month, they will have free screenings, free screenings for hypertension and blood pressure. And that's also where they will talk about other screening programs, such as calcium scoring, which you can get done. For most of the time, I will admit, most insurance, insurance companies do not cover calcium scoring because they know that make it pretty inexpensive. For example, my hospital is only $146. And... Uh, up until probably a year ago, you could walk in the door and just ask for it, and they would do it. But they got worried about, you know, if somebody had a really, a really high calcium score and there was no doctor attached to it, then, you know, what do you do with the results? And then if something happens, you know, there's legal issues there. But um, so for the past year, you have to at least have an order from a physician. But I'm pretty sure there are probably still places where you can just go and get a calcium score done or even just ask your primary care doctor to order a calcium score for you and, uh, you know, that way you sort of have an idea of, of where you are. And basically the, just the way the calcium scores work is um, it scans your heart, it scans each individual artery, and it will give you a score of how much plaque is in your arteries. Obviously, you want that score to be zero. Um, and okay. if, you're, if, you're, if you're 70 and your calcium score is zero, you're golden. You're probably never going to have a heart attack. If you're 70 and your calcium score is, you know, 75, that's probably normal for a 70-year-old. However, if you're 30 and your calcium score is 75, we really got some problems. We need to be really aggressive treating your disease because your calcium score should be zero at the age of 30. And so whenever you get a calcium score, it compares you against men and women in your age, and it will give you a percentile of where you fall within that group. And so it's, you know, it's important that um, you have a, a, a comparison. It's not just a calcium score that stands alone for everybody. A calcium score and a 70-year-old and a 30-year-old are two different things. Oh, gosh, there's so much to ask right now. So okay, first of all, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to try to uh, – <laughs> We're, we're going to have you back on. <laughs> That's another thing, but, um, <laughs> but let's kind of skirt through some things. Number one, um, how much of a role does diet, if you had to do percentages, how much of a role does diet play? How much of a role of a role does exercise play? How much of a role does genetics play? Medication. Can you break that down? Hmm, that's a difficult question. So this is all just a guess, but I will say okay. most important when it comes to all of this stuff, the one thing that is extremely important is, and it's the one that's not modifiable, is genetics. And, um, you know, anybody can tell you this from anecdotal data, but, but, you know, true science backs it up as well. But you can, there are people that can, you know, eat what they want to eat, smoke, not take care of themselves. And, you know, they live to be 95 years old. There are people that exercise and do everything right, you know, have a heart attack at the age of 50. And that's all genetic related. And so... You know, there are people that, you know, live unhealthy lifestyles, eat salty foods. Their blood pressure is 110 over 60 all day, every day. There are people that exercise and do everything right. Their blood pressure is, you know, 220 over 100 without medication. And a large Mm. example of that, um, you know, people, you think if you eat a vegetarian diet that your risk of heart attack and stroke is going to be low. One of, if which I probably within the next year will be the most populous country in the world, India, there's a huge segment of their population that's 
vegetarian, vegetarian from birth. However, of those vegetarians, their risk of heart disease is slightly higher than that of the average American, despite the fact that they've been vegetarian since day one. It's genetics. That's all genetics, not their diet. And so that's that's a, a really glaring example of how strong of, of a role genetics plays when it comes to cardiovascular disease. And so genetics, I would say, obviously, number one. I won't, I won't say percentiles. I'll just I'll just sort of rank them in order. Okay. So just, right. genetics is going to be number one. Okay. okay. Now for African Americans specifically, hypertension is going to be number two. Um, okay. For several reasons. Number one, um, hypertension is extremely prevalent for us, and it's somewhat more difficult to treat for us. And then when you look at patients. Um, or, or when you look at the disorders that really affect us, um, stroke is really big for African Americans. Comes to disparities compared to other races. So, and hypertension is very is very strongly related to stroke. Um, next, it's obviously related to heart attacks and heart disease. And um, it's it's so so that that is going to give that the number two ranking because it's prevalent. And it's very difficult to treat. And our our pressures tend to run a little higher than other races. I once again, it's a genetic mm-hmm. thing, and um, but it, it's very prevalent for us. And if you also, if you look at uh, renal failure, it's uh, one of the reasons why we have so many more patients in our in our community that have kidney failure that end up on dialysis. For us, you know, hypertension is a big part of that across the board for all people. Um, it's uh, diabetes that really contributes to end-stage renal disease. But for us, hypertension tends to be play a bigger role than for other, other races. And then, so we have genetics, hypertension. Next is probably going to be diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we have more obesity in our communities. And as we talked about a little earlier, that's multifactorial. Some of it is cultural because you like the comfort food. Some of it's due to lack of exercise. Some of it's socioeconomic. But, um, you know, that all sort of ties in, the obesity ties into diabetes because every single ounce of fat that you have in your body can contribute to what we call um, insulin resistance. And so type 2 diabetes, which is most the type of, usually the type of diabetes that we're mentioning, what fat does, your body makes insulin, but your body just isn't responding to it. And fat creates that problem where your body doesn't respond to insulin. So the more fat you have, the more insulin resistance you have. And that's why losing weight tends to help diabetes, type 2 diabetes. So diabetes I'm going to put next in diabetes is another one of those things that feeds into heart attack. It feeds into stroke. It feeds into all the cardiovascular problems that, you know, we have to deal with. And then I'm going to say cholesterol. Now, this is one place, one thing that's interesting. So as African-Americans, we tend to have lower cholesterol than other groups. That doesn't translate to lower event rates of cardiovascular disease, but we do tend to run lower cholesterol levels. And that's, Hmm. you know, obviously just due to our genetic makeup, but it it doesn't benefit us as far as, you know, reducing our overall risk. And I guess the other thing I should mention is smoking. So we tend to smoke at about, at this point, um, the same rate as um, other races. Um, I think probably 16 to 17% of Caucasians and 16 to 17% of African Americans smoke right now. Um, But interestingly, about two-thirds of African Americans that smoke tend to smoke menthol cigarettes. And the the concern about that is it tends to be more addictive. So once you start smoking menthol cigarettes, you're more likely to uh, smoke more, and it's much more difficult to quit um, if you're smoking menthol cigarettes. And it, it also causes more inflammation in the lungs, so it's more likely to cause COPD and chronic lung problems if you smoke mentholated cigarettes. So that's just a, an interesting difference between even though we smoke the same amount, we smoke different types of cigarettes. But I think that's the order. So just to recap, genetics, high blood pressure, 
diabetes, high cholesterol, smoking. Okay. Um, can you talk about the diet versus exercise argument? <laughs> there is no argument. There okay. is no argument. Diet is by far most important. Um, diet is you, by far most you, important. You, yes. Thank you. Um, okay. uh, not to discount exercise, but if you mm-hmm. if you've ever been on a treadmill, or you've and you've these things aren't entirely accurate, but they're pretty close. Um, you exercise for thirty minutes on a treadmill, and you burn what 100, 150 calories, right? And you think you did something? Oh, if that much, yeah. That that kind yeah. of frustrates me when I look at that, and I'm like, what am yes. I doing? Yes. Okay. You walk out the door and you drink a bottle of Gatorade. You just broke even, right? And so <laughs> it's really difficult to make inroads as far as weight loss and so forth with exercise. Exercise is important, but, you know, as far as maintaining weight and so forth, diet is 10 times as important. You can easily cut out, you know, 500 calories a day out of your diet, and, you know, at the end of the month you've eliminated, you know, thousands of calories. To burn thousands of calories exercising, you're basically running, you know, marathons and then injuring yourself, and you have to sit for a week because you can't do anything. So diet is, is far more important than exercise. Um, and, and that's just one reason why when we're, when we're talking about weight loss, um, because that you're going to, that affects what you do every single day. You know, you may not exercise every single day, but diet is every single day. You, and the most important thing about diet that's is true. not, I hadn't thought about is, that. It, yeah. And it's, it's a big picture thing. It's not, you know, I'm going to change my diet and try and lose weight for three months. It's, it's got to be lifestyle changes, you know, mm-hmm. wholesale lifestyle changes that you're going to do for the rest of your life. And, you know, the things that you used to do, you used to like, those are now treats. You have a healthy diet, a healthy lifestyle that you're going to live for the rest of your life. And that's what translates into, you know, major benefits in cardiovascular health. And that's why, you know, that's why diet is so important. So, when it comes to diet, um, I always tell my patients, and it depends on what your goals are. Some people's primary goal is to lose weight. And so if their primary goal is to lose weight, I tell them to start with a low-hanging fruit. And for most people, low-hanging fruit are two things. So what you're drinking and what you're snacking on. And so if you, number one, eliminate sugary drinks. If you drink, I don't know, two Cokes a day or something like that, then if you eliminate that by the end of the week, you're going to eliminate 1,500 calories, which is, you know, that's hours and hours and hours of exercise. That was water. And you just eliminated a ton of calories. Then you look at what you're snacking on. If you're snacking on chips with dip or, you know, something like that, look at what your or sweet snacks, look at what you're snacking on. Change that to something else. You can change it to fruit or vegetables or nuts. Um, you know, things that are healthy or things that, and it's not just what you're eating, it's also what your body has to invest to digest it. So say, for example, you um, drink 200 calories of a sugary drink versus you eat 200 calories of nuts. Your body has to actually burn a lot of energy to, to break those nuts down. Your GI tract has to actually burn energy to actually, you know, extract those calories. So if it has to to burn, it may have to burn, you know, 50 calories just to get those 200 calories in your body. So it's 150 as opposed to the sugary drink. Oh, it's going straight in your bloodstream. You're getting all 200 of those puppies. And so there's a difference also with um, the kind of food that you're eating, not just the number of calories that you're eating. And so that's why healthy foods, foods that are high in fiber, um, fruits and vegetables are much healthier snacks and much healthier for you overall than eating um, some of the other, you know, simple snacks and, you know, quick things that we're using, just ripping over and eating real, ripping open and eating real fast um, as a quick snack. And so just I think, to start. The, I, think that's a, go ahead. I think that's a major part of it is the whole quickness thing. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, because I think we've gotten really caught up in that whole quickness thing. And because I was thinking about when you were talking about treats, and I remember growing up, like I was talking uh, about, I've talked about before, when I was coming up, going out to going even going to McDonald's, not talking about even going to Red Lobster, but just going to McDonald's was a treat. 
Okay. Right. You, it, you didn't right. go to McDonald's every day. You know, you just mm-hmm. didn't pass by, oh, let's stop at McDonald's. You actually went to McDonald's. Now right. you have kids whining if the parents don't stop, and the parents will just do it to <laughs> appease the kids to stop at McDonald's. And it's like, this is not good. This is right. not good. And, you know, I actually was – I worked at McDonald's in high school. I was actually a McDonald's junkie. I actually now have a – you know, McDonald's fries are like the, you know, like gold. And now I have right. I've modified my diet so much that I finally have like, hey, I don't know. I don't want to go to McDonald's, <laughs> you know. It's not, you know, it's a matter of I think you just have to balance stuff now. Uh, and I right. think people have just gotten to the point where I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, versus I want this, but I need that. So let me get what I need, and then, you know, for now, and then maybe on the weekend, I treat myself to what I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or something like that. So I don't know. And, but, and one, one, one other thing I've learned about diet um, and, you know, talking to patients over the years and, you know, some also with my own personal experience is once you change your diet to eating a healthier diet or a lower sodium diet, it's hard to go back to eating like you were eating before. And I'll mm-hmm. use salt as easiest example because I have tons of heart failure patients. And, you know, you tell these patients, when you go home, you take your salt shaker and you take it off the table. You can throw it in the trash for all I care. No salt anywhere on the table. When you cook, don't cook with any salt. Add pepper and add other seasonings that don't have salt and try and get used to that. And, you know, they, the first time they come back, they're complaining because it's bland. The next time they come back, they start to tell you all the things that they figured out to avoid salt. And the next time they come back, they tell you everything that I eat when I go somewhere, it's way too salty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're, at that point, their tongue becomes desensitized and it, because it's been desensitized to eating so much salt over the years, now it becomes sensitized to salt, and now you can actually taste salt. So if they won't want salt, say they make some green beans, they want salt, they'll just sprinkle a tiny bit of salt on there, and that'll be plenty. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to, you know, cooking it in salt and then hit the table, they salt it some more before they even taste it and then eat it. Actually, you can taste your food, and then salt may add just a tiny bit of a little kick or a little bit of flavoring but you know you start to realize that all everything you're eating before was way too salty and you just Mm -hmm. didn't know because you were so desensitized to it and then you know before you know it they don't use salt on anything Mm -hmm. and it's it's pretty easy to do it just that that happens in about three months Oh, gosh, there's so many things I want to ask you. I I really would appreciate it if you could come back sometime soon. No, uh, I wanted great. to ask you about the Mediterranean diet. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of hype over that. Um, there sure and is. some other things. So how can people uh, reach you or find out more about you and, and your work? Well, I'm, I'm pretty easy to find online, so you can just Google my name. I don't do a lot of social media. Um, I mean, I have an Instagram. Um, it's pretty empty, but um, it'll be coming. I'll, I'll, I'm actually starting to add more things to it. And um, but I'm easy to find. I, you know, if you want to read articles that I've written and so forth, just Google Taiwan Tillman online, and I'll pop up. And you can read some of my articles and some of my publications. They're out there. And um, okay. and if you know, if you need to contact me, I'm not too difficult to find online. And I have found a couple of things. I will post them on the G's Power Hour Facebook page. And um, Dr. Tillman, thank you so very much. Please forgive me because today's National Dark Chocolate Day. I'm not giving that up today. Um, But (laughs) but, uh, we'll get more into some of that, too, later. Thank you so much. It's been a treat having you on today. Thank you. I enjoyed spending time with you. You have a good day. You, too. Tomorrow, the mighty Princess Cooper and I discuss football. Thank you for listening. This has been G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed, and please remember, all real power comes from God. Take care.
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.